0: Is the Opportunity Zone marketplace at a critical inflection point? Find out more next. Welcome to another exciting episode of the Opportunity Zones Podcast, the weekly show where we interview Opportunity Zones professionals and experts from fund managers to tax advisors, from real estate developers to venture capitalists. If it impacts Opportunity Zones or the Opportunity Funds industry, we cover it here on the Opportunity Zones Podcast. Welcome to the Opportunity Zones podcast. I'm your host, Jimmy Atkinson, and joining us today from Chicago is Nick Parrish. Nick is Managing Director and Head of Business Development at Cresset Partners. Nick joined us back in May of 2020, and he's back now in spring of 2021 to give us an update on Fund 1 and Fund 2 under Cresset Partners, their first fund raised million across 2019 and 2020, making it, we believe, one of the largest qualified opportunity funds in existence. And they're already off and running with Fund Two, which was launched last summer. Nick, how are you doing? Welcome to the show.
1: I'm good, Jimmy. Thanks for having me back.
0: Absolutely, Nick. So to start us off, could you just give us a 30,000 foot view on how you view the qualified opportunity zone and Qualified Opportunity Fund marketplace uh, as we're coming out of COVID here. Give us an update on all that has transpired over the last year or so with you and the Crescent team in Qualified Opportunity Fund land since we last spoke.
1: Happy to do it. And no doubt it's been an interesting and, and wild ride over the last two and a half, three years. So Jimmy, as you may recall, we put together an Opportunity Zone strategy under our real estate business as far back as 2018, so we were one of the early adopters, launched our first fund in end of 2018, early 2019, primary focus on real estate development, core high growth markets, a mix of multifamily, mixed use office. We were very fortunate with our first fund in 2029, early 2020, we were able to raise about, as you mentioned, $465 million. total real estate value deployed about a billion too, and committed that to seven projects all in great markets around the country. And we were really fortunate. By March of 2020, and the onset of COVID, we had deployed most of that, if not all of that capital. We were under construction on the majority of our projects, and we had raised all of our capital. So going into COVID, we were in in a good position, a very fortunate position in that construction was largely deemed an essential business. We were able to keep projects going, keep people on the job sites, And continued on on Fund One, largely unabated. All seven projects today are under construction, doing well, actually starting to later this year, we'll be delivering on some of that. So had a very good experience with Fund One. And I think as we deployed that capital, as we closed out that first fund in in the summer of 2020 and looked at the opportunity zone landscape, I think we continued to see, pun intended, the, the opportunity there for ourselves and our investors. Both to deploy capital to attractive investment opportunities, certainly felt that the good opportunities had not, despite some fears, been taken up. There were still high-quality, attractive projects available in opportunity zones and saw the benefit to investors. The idea of investing in high-quality real estate for the long-term in a very tax-efficient way was still attractive. And so we decided to launch Fund 2.0 summer of last year, very similar mandate and target to our first fund targeting a, a mix of Class A real estate development projects, high growth markets, uh, a variety of different asset types, four million to $500 million in capital, and we're well underway. Today, we have about $170 million in capital committed for projects either under construction, under contract, or under LOI and a fairly strong pipeline beyond that. So we're feeling good. We're in, in good shape with fun too. looking to find a couple more projects, raise some capital and wrap that up end of this year. But we consider ourselves fortunate to have kind of continued to grow and thrive through, through COVID.
0: Yeah, it seems like you weathered the COVID storm nicely. You were the beneficiary of some fortunate timing, for sure. Been on the end of your fundraising efforts, just as COVID was starting to hit this country here, the United States. And so you were able to just continue with uh, capital deployment and construction on that fund, as you mentioned. And now Fund 2 seems to be off and running really nicely. Could you tell us a little bit more about, for those listeners who may have missed our first podcast episode together, Nick, you tell us a little bit more about Crescent Partners and the team behind these two funds?
1: Sure. Crescent is a business we started just about four years ago, our two co-founders, Avi Stein and Eric Becker, were both private equity entrepreneurs who had long 30 plus years, year careers in private equity. And as they retired from private equity and were looking for solutions for their own family capital, they ultimately formed single family offices, which were ultimately combined to start Cresset And Cresset the business has a, has a couple different arms to it. We've created a uh, multifamily office called Crescent Asset Management today, and that business is about $13.5 billion, 150 people, two hundred. I'm sorry, 10 offices around the country, focused on asset allocation, manager selection, financial planning, and then a whole host of non-financial services, estate, trust, governance, credit and banking, et cetera. And then Crescent Partners, which is my side of the business, focused on identifying unique private investment opportunities for high net worth individuals and, and single family offices. So Crescent Partners, we started about three years ago, today have raised and deployed a little over a billion dollars in equity to a variety of private equity and real estate transactions. And what was really interesting about Opportunity zones, we had built this real estate business a team of experienced professionals multiple decades in the business. We had set up Crescent Real Estate Partners to focus on long term investments in private real estate. And so when opportunity zones came along, it was a very natural fit for us because we were already looking at things through a long term lens, often ten years or more. Just given the nature of our capital, we thought about things through an after tax lens. So we're always thinking about the best way to to structure those investments. And then last, we are ultimately a group of entrepreneurs who have our own capital to deploy. We work on behalf of a lot of other entrepreneurs and and families, all of whom are generating capital gains often pretty regularly. And so Opportunity Zones were a very, very natural fit for us and a a clear place for us to direct the team. And our history, the, the team's history, has been largely in same type of investments that we're doing in, in the Opportunity Zone Fund. So class A, institutional quality development projects, major urban markets, working with a few key development partners of the I think 11 projects that we have underway. Almost half of those are with Hines out of Houston, who's a developer we've worked with you know, members of our team have worked with and invested with personally for the better part of two decades. So very much in line with what we were doing and philosophically how we've uh, approached our real estate investments today. So so that's the team, call it 15 to 20 people across a number of different asset classes or product types that are focusing on these investments.
0: In the investment strategy, you touched on it briefly, Class A, growth markets, could you give us some specific examples of projects that you're working on with Fund One, perhaps? Are you solely multifamily? Are you doing some multifamily in office? Is Are there any other
1: property types in the mix? Yeah, it's a, it's a good question. So I would tell you, we like the benefit of diversification. I, we don't have a crystal ball. We don't know what the world's going to look like in, in 10 years. And so the best way to, to solve for that is diversification. We do that geographically. We do that in terms of the partners we work with, and then to a certain extent by investing in different product types. For a variety of reasons, we like multifamily, both in the current environment as well as in the construct of a 10-year hold period. So I would say we've skewed more heavily toward multifamily development. But that said, we have a couple projects that are mixed use with some office. We've been looking at industrial. Just to give you a sense, our, our first project, very first Opportunity Zone project in Fund One, is a multifamily high-rise development in uh, downtown Houston. It's a partnership that we we are in with Hines. The property is called the Brava. It's a 46-story apartment tower. That project is under construction. I think it's somewhere in the high 30s in terms of floors. We expect it to top out this summer. That was a again kind of an example, a good example of the types of projects that we'll do. So very high quality, great development partner major urban market in the in the form of Houston. We've done some mixed use. We've got a really exciting project in Nashville. I'm sure it's no surprise to your listeners. Nashville's a, a great market to be in. We've assembled a, a fairly sizable property there, a number of different parcels, and we're doing a mixed use development also with Heinz uh, that will ultimately, when finished, include two different residential developments as well as an office component and the office uses a technology called T3. It's a, it's a model Hines is developed for an all timber office building, but really creative, unique. It's in a neighborhood called Wedgwood, Houston. Really unique, up and coming area there. And I'll tell you, we've only just broken ground on that, and already have significant preleasing activity and interest in the office component there. So really excited about that mix. And I think that's, again, what we've done in Fund 1. I think you'll largely see that continue in into Fund 2 as well.
0: Very good. Uh, this is my first time hearing about T3. I'm not too familiar with that side of the business so much, but it sounds like it might use a lot of lumber. Correct me if I'm wrong. Is, is that a concern of yours with uh, how lumber prices have skyrocketed over the last uh, 12 plus months?
1: It's a very good question. I'll tell you that's Probably the area that we are spending the most time is on the cost of materials, not just lumber. I would tell you lumber and steel are the two inputs that have increased materially in price. Overall, I would tell you there's been some pros and cons or gives and takes over the last year. Certainly, financing has probably come down from where it was two years ago going into that. this So we've, we've actually picked up a little bit on the fundraising side. I'm, I'm sorry, on funding, so the debt side. That's coming back a little bit, but that's been a a pickup. Labor prices have largely been flat, which is good. And then certain supplies, yes, are increasing a little bit. So we're certainly watching that. We can mitigate some of those risks by both guaranteed maximum pricing on these contracts or GMP contracts with the general contractors. That's one way to do it. Working with larger developers who have some ability to buy in bulk or in scale certainly is helpful. And then building contingencies into our models, which I also think is important, is we've certainly in our underwriting for these projects built in a lot of cushion because these prices of inputs do fluctuate. So it's, but it's very much a focus and something we're very mindful of. And new projects as we go forward, we're really trying to build in a lot of cushion to account for potential increases.
0: Good. So product types, we talked about class A, multifamily, some mixed use and office, any industrial.
1: Yeah, industrial is an interesting area. We we are very bullish on industrial, in fact, have built out outside of opportunity zones, a separate industrial strategy Have hired somebody. Our team has a lot of industrial experience, but actually hired somebody dedicated in the industrial space. So I think we are very interested in it. We think there's some compelling supply demand dynamics occurring there, not just as a result of e-commerce, but I think a, a broader change in, in the way supply chains work today. So we're very keen on it. I think there are some there's some interesting overlap with opportunity zones. If you think about opportunity zones aren't always places you want to live and work, but they often make great industrial locations. So particularly those things near highways, ports, rail terminals. So it lines up very well. I will tell you that the, the challenge has been thus far that there is such demand for these projects that just frankly speaking, they aren't at least in the context of a 10-year long-term hold they are not underwriting to the types of returns that we would otherwise seek and that we can get in multifamily and office. So I think that's been our biggest challenge. We're going to continue to look and my hope would be that you will see something from us in that space in current opportunities and fund but you know we want to be ultimately we want to be disciplined about our investment approach and if we're targeting a certain return and we can earn that elsewhere it's a trade off that we, we just can't make. So, certainly interest, but haven't yet seen the right opportunity for our fund.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. If the numbers don't add up the way that they do for multifamily or office, then that's perfectly understandable. I wanted to shift gears and talk about investor interest in opportunity zones. You mentioned a few minutes ago that a lot of the investors that you work with regularly are generating capital gains oftentimes not as just one-off events but they are regularly generating capital gains what has been investor interest in opportunity zones or how has investor interest in opportunity zones evolved over the last 12 to 24 months
1: yeah it's a good question i'm gonna tell you obviously out of the gate there was a lot of interest in opportunity zones it was interest, not necessarily action. So I think the program garnered a, a lot of talk, a lot of interest early on. You know, Some of that came through in 2019 and, and early 2020. And then I think COVID put some ice on it for a period of time. I think people, it was a period of time where people didn't know what was happening in the world. And frankly, with markets down, with people less active, they just weren't generating gains. So I think you saw a general kind of lull in fundraising, in interest. We've seen that slowly but materially come back over the last, I would say, six months, somewhat coming into the end of the year. And I think the other important dynamic that we've learned in this two and a half, three years in the opportunity zone space is there's a big element of opportunity zones that are deadline driven. And that's around the 180 day deadline for investors, the year end deadline, and what we've learned is we've learned a lot about human nature. And I think human nature is such that people respond to deadlines, they wait till the last possible minute around deadlines. So what we've seen is that fundraising has been and investor interest has been very episodic. And it tends to be centered around these deadlines. Well, there was a deadline somewhat at the end of this year, however, the IRS on, has on more than one occasion provided relief and pushed out some of those deadlines. And so Over the last kind of nine to 12 months, we've not seen a material and meaningful set of deadlines that are going to drive investors to opportunity zones. So I think there's been a lot of interest and probably increasing interest. I'm sure we'll talk about uh, tax policy and what's happening there. There's certainly a lot of focus and increasing focus on opportunity zones, but thus far, there hasn't been a deadline to force investors from the sidelines and force them to invest. So we've seen capital flow we've seen the number of increase i think pretty bullish on the remainder of the year i think you're going to see a confluence of those events happen that it should shape up for a pretty busy second half of the year for opportunity zones and again i think as long as we can continue to do good projects and prove out the thesis and there will certainly be demand for it
0: yeah that makes sense i think you're spot on with that nick i feel like we're approaching an inflection point for the Opportunity Zones incentive in many ways. One, we have these potential impending policies coming down from the Biden administration with capital gains tax rates going up, possibly going up substantially, maybe a rewrite of the tax code, potentially 1031s being in trouble. How may that drive more interest to Opportunity Zone investment? Your other point is we do have a few deadlines upcoming. We have the annual deadline of September 11th coming up, which refers to K-1 gains from the previous year. Or put another way, 2020 gains recognized through a partnership schedule K-1. Investment of those gains, the deadline is September 11th, 2021. So that's coming up in a few short months here. But I think possibly the bigger deadline Coming up at the end of the year is a one-time deadline, unless the IRS extends it like they have with some other stuff. The 10% basis step up is expiring after December 31 of this year. And then we also have the market reaching new heights, it seems, if not every week, then every day possibly. We've got the market going up, up, and many markets going up. The the stock market is, is going up, the real estate markets are heating up, and a lot of cryptocurrency... A rather speculative investment, but plenty of gains being generated from crypto lately as well. Let's focus in on one of those points right now. Nick, talk to me about what you're seeing in terms of the potential impact of some of the policies that the Biden administration has been floating, particularly around raising the capital gains tax rate.
1: Yeah, obviously that's generated a lot of focus on tax rates and, and capital gains. I think even going into the election, a lot of people knew it was likely taxes were going to go one direction as a result of a a Biden administration. But I think the announcement a few weeks ago on his specific plan and some of the rates he proposed caused a lot more attention to be focused on programs and ways to decrease some of that potential tax exposure if capital gains rates have been increased. So naturally, opportunity zones are part of that conversation. And it's, we've done quite a bit of analysis. It's in, in a rising tax rate environment, even given the, the way opportunity zones are structured today, you still have a, a tax payment that you have to make in 2027. That 2027 payment is made at the then prevailing rate. So there's a chance that you actually have to pay a higher out of pocket rate in 2027 should capital gains taxes go up. However, the ability to shift assets into a portfolio that is then held for 10 years or more and eliminates that capital gain more than offsets that. So it's it's a very valid and helpful program should rates go up. You add to that, so you referenced earlier the 1031, not clear what happens with that. However, I think just the the sheer perception that that goes away as a tool for real estate investors to roll their real estate capital gains Should that go away, Opportunity Zones would be one of the last programs standing. And so that has garnered a lot of interest. I will tell you, we are hearing about and now starting to see some people who are, I don't know if I'd say prematurely, but thinking about when and how to trigger capital gains. That might be in stocks that they own, selling those now in order to trigger the gain and be able to invest it into an Opportunity Zone program before Any capital gains increase, or even people talking about pulling business sales forward into 2021 to be able to get invested before that step up goes away at the end of this year. So, we're actually starting to see even the uncertainty around that program and tax rates causing investors to think about and act on that concern. And so, again, that should all benefit Opportunity Zone programs. Any program that's designed to defer capital gains taxes. In a rising capital gains environment, it's going to be going to be beneficial to investors.
0: Yep, couldn't agree more. And then let's get back to those deadlines that are upcoming. You mentioned that a lot of opportunity zone investment activity is episodic, or I might say there's a lot of seasonality involved with capital gains investing in opportunity zone funds. I think we typically see a flurry of activity toward the end of the year, particularly last year where the IRS essentially did away with the 180-day window for a lot of investors and simply pushed back the deadline for a lot of people to year-end 2020. We don't have quite something like that this year. But we do have the September 11th deadline looming and the December 31 deadline looming. Could you discuss a little bit more the effect that these deadlines have on the psychology of investors? And what do you anticipate seeing in terms of investment flows into your funds over the rest of the year?
1: Yeah, we're pretty optimistic. If you remember back to last year, you obviously had a very volatile period of time coming out of COVID, uncertainty around things. Then if you recall, kind of summer of last year into the fall, you really saw markets rebound and rebound significantly. And so in that, call it September to November, even September to December timeframe, there was almost some pent-up sales activity, whether it was businesses, real estate, securities that people had been sitting on. And then as the markets rebounded, you saw a lot of people selling things and realizing capital gains, and so anyone who did that in the form of a partnership or other pass through entity and generated a you know second half of the year gain, their deadlines are all have all been pushed out to September eleventh so a lot of that activity has just not been subject to a deadline yet, and people have had the luxury of kind of thinking about other things. You made the comment earlier about the confluence of events. Well, I think you're going to have a confluence of events, both that deadline on September 11th, coupled with the talk around capital gains rates, making people very aware of the various programs that they have available and how and when they need to to utilize those. So we would expect a fair amount of activity. And I've already seen some of that ramping up. Frankly, some people who are not, not everybody waits till last minute. We've seen some material upticks in the last month or two people actually investing gains in opportunities and funds. But we would expect through the summer and, and going into the fall in advance of September, a lot of those kind of late triggered 2020 capital gains coming into the system. And then again, I would envision the year end being as big or even bigger and I will tell you, in modeling out the, the whole QOZ program, the deferral benefit of it is nice. It's good to have another five, six years to do what you want with your money. The 10% step up is nice. It's a way of effectively getting a discount on, on the tax bill you have to pay in 2027. The real benefits in the the 10-year hold and the ability to own good, high-quality real estate without any tax implications, that's the real benefit of this. That being said, 10% is 10%. And so for a lot of investors, they look and say, okay, this is, well, maybe it's a security I've been sitting on for a while. I think you referenced the market environment. You've seen a lot of people have owned stock for a very long period of time. Markets have run 40 to 50% in the past year. People are looking at that saying, I've got a fair amount of capital locked up in a security or a, an asset. Now might be a good time to take a little bit of that off the table while I have this extra ten percent, and set some of it aside in and, and a QOZ program and, and benefit from that extra ten percent. So, we think those two things are going to drive a lot of activity, at both September and year end. And then it remains to see what it remains to be seen, what happens in 2022 and beyond. Again, we're firm believers that that 10% step-up's nice, but it's by no means the sole driver. If you still have the ability to own real estate for 10 years on a tax-free basis, that's still a very attractive program. So I don't think it will necessarily change the QoZ program, but I do think we'll see a lot of people try to push forward decisions into 2020 to take advantage of that.
0: Yeah, I'm a like minded believer in that as well. I I don't believe the 10% basis step up is a huge driver, but it's a little cherry on top, if nothing else. And I think you're absolutely right. I I think if you haven't rebalanced your investment portfolio in the past six to 12 months or so, there's a good chance you may be overweighted in stocks. And maybe now I don't want to Give anybody investment advice? That's not what I'm mean to do here, but I think there's an opportunity for a lot of individuals who are sitting a lot on a lot of unrealized capital gains to potentially take a little bit off the table and diversify into a different product type with an opportunity zone investment. Getting back to Biden, one more thing besides just increasing taxes that his administration may be planning to do, although we haven't heard much from his administration on opportunity zones. There's a lot of thought that at some point he or his administration are going to put their own stamp on the program, maybe put some guardrails around the program, regulate it a, bit, a little bit more tightly, and uh, possibly require some more reporting from qualified opportunity funds, such as your fund. Nick, what, what are your thoughts on that? And what would you like to see in terms of reporting requirements? What do you think would be fair?
1: Yeah, I that's a good question Jimmy. I th- there's been talk about that for a while now, right? If you're going to have a program that's based on on social impact and the change that we're making in these communities, one would think that you want to mo- monitor and track the impact that you're having. And so that's been discussed for a while. We are supportive of that. I think a lot of market participants are I think that could be tracking dollars deployed into these areas, that could be tracking job creation, it could be around social and racial equity. So by and large, we're very supportive of that. I think it's a, a logical evolution to the program. We've actually been gathering data from our development partners for a while now in, in anticipation of that. And we think that's again, it's if we're going to make the case, for this program to continue, even in some cases grow, as there's been some proposals around expanding the scope of this. Uh, You'll only be able to do that if you can prove that the capital is getting deployed into areas. It's having an impact. It's creating jobs. It's creating economic activity. And so I think, again, we're supportive. I would envision that that something like that will be implemented. Listen, the, the Biden administration has no shortage of things it's working on. So but to a certain extent, the Opportunity Zone program is despite some criticism, it's largely working the way it was expected. And so it's probably not the brightest burning fire for him and for the administration, but we would anticipate at some point something around transparency, r- reporting and accountability to get folded into the, the, the regulation.
0: Yeah, I agree. I don't think it's coming down the pipeline immediately, but eventually at some point down the road, we should see some changes coming. I think that's right. Well, Nick, it was a pleasure speaking with you today. Pleasure catching up with you. Before we go, can you tell our listeners where they can go to learn more about you and the Crescent Partners Opportunity Zone funds?
1: Yeah, we have a website out there, newly redesigned, give you some good information on the Opportunity Zone program. Our projects, our background, you can look for either Crescent Partners or I believe it is com. That information is is all out there and please feel free to look at it and reach out to us through there.
0: Fantastic. com. And for our listeners out there today, we'll have show notes on the Opportunity Zones database website, as I always do. You can find links to all of the resources that Nick and I discussed on today's show by heading on over to opportunitydb.com slash podcast. And there you'll find links to all the resources that we discussed today. Nick, appreciate you joining us. Thank you very much. That's it for our show today. A huge thank you to you, our listener. If you liked this episode, please rate and review us on iTunes. The Opportunity Zones podcast is produced by the Opportunity Database. Visit OpportunityDB.com to learn more about Opportunity Zones and Opportunity Zone fund investing. You can learn how to subscribe to this podcast and read more about today's guest in the show notes by visiting OpportunityDB.com slash podcast. And we'll be back soon with another episode.